was known to be one of the most fearless journalists in the world. He kicks ass and chews bubblegum at the same time. He is Shepard Ambellis. And you are listening to The Shepard Ambellis Show. Without further ado, here is your host, Shepard Ambellis. It's Thursday, August the 4th, 2022. Uh, Time has sped up. And, you know, I don't know if y'all remember me talking about this the other day. Sometimes I say, like, my week's gone by fast. um, But Bethany and I were talking about this behind the scenes quite a bit um, toward the end of last week. And we said, like, look. I feel like I can't get anything done during the day, even though I am. I mean, I'm, I know I get a lot done, but it feels like I'm like, like treading or like trudging through sludge. And I'm just like, like trying to get somewhere and I can't. And it seems like time is sped up and there's not enough time in the, in the day to get anything done. And then lo and behold, they come out. I see a news report. They say on the 29th, of july the earth slowed down in its rotation and he said eventually it's going to take almost a second out of the day and it's already happening and i thought wow that's insane because we like do you remember that bethany we were talking about that on the uh, phone Oh, absolutely. And it, it it's just going faster and faster. And when kids say it, you know, my kids say it and you hear other kids talking about it, too. You know, we didn't kids don't talk like that. It, it, so that's why I'm not thinking it's, you know, hey, we're getting older and there's more to do. No, something is going on. I am convinced. I don't know what I don't know how I'm not even close to an expert, not even close. But I mean, something's going on with this ge- geological planetary changes. Something's up. Yeah, absolutely. We got Bethany Adani with us. Aaron Cole is also riding shotgun. And we are going to have Sean Witzman coming up. Uh, He was involved with the Bloody Hill Project. Bloodyhill.com is his website. And it's all about the January 6th, um, I guess, insurrection, as they've dubbed it. Um, And we're going to get into that with him. Bethany was at... uh, the um capital that day you know out outside or whatever and um i'm sure that they're gonna you know exchange some conversation and you know we're gonna learn a lot more about what really went on that day and what the government is doing to these riders that they've deemed them uh or or uh i don't know what you call them insurrectionists supposedly and then i was watching or i had on in the background the Alex Jones trial for I probably four or five hours between last night and, and today while I was working. And, you know, the whole thing is just like really bizarre to me. Um, one thing they had Owen Schroyer on, uh, one of Alex Jones hosts and, um, you know, he had to testify and, they're basically, um, you know, Owen didn't really say, he didn't say anything directly from like what I gathered from his testimony. So, you know, and the way he worded things, although he showed emotion certain ways that probably would have been perceived like a certain way, um, the way he worded things technically means nothing. They got nothing on Owen, in my opinion. They, um, I don't even know how you can go after a commentator. You know, uh, they, for instance, the whole thing with Owen Troyer, they brought up, they said, um, they said, look, Owen read this Zero Hedge article and started talking about Megyn Kelly and Sandy Hook and all this, and, and then played some video clips of like the corner, and the corner was uh, talking about like the people couldn't, the family couldn't, um, see their their loved ones that were deceased um because they were just going to take pictures of them and you know these are just like excerpts of longer clips i would have to get into it but i don't 
I mean, like Owen, they're like, Owen, did you vet this before you put it on air? And he's like, no, they handed it to me like four minutes toward the end of the broadcast. And, you know, so like maybe his team vets it. I mean, like they didn't really get into that or let him explain that. Um, you know, but which I'm sure his team, obviously, I know they do. It's InfoWars. They're already kind of vetting that. So, like, why does he need to vet it now? Also, it's posted on Zero Hedge and you're commentating on it. Well, the whole thing was, is like, um, it was written by this author called uh, Zero Point Now. And I don't know if they have a relation with Zero Hedge, but like, they must post on there. And it got picked up from some like, coin website or bitcoin thing and this guy zero point now wrote it or whatever whoever that is and um so you know and then they say oh you know you didn't even bother to check that zero point now do you even know who that is you know and i'm, I'm thinking okay well why aren't you guys going after fucking zero hedge then or or fucking like the author that wrote it um and also mainstream media too they have to print retractions all the time and they never get in that's what i'm saying okay so so here you go exactly so by these standards by these standards then uh let's just say i had uh all the money and resources in the world because this is where it'd get difficult because you would have to have a lot of resources but theoretically you could go in now and cite this alex jones case and just totally decimate the mainstream media. Like we could just go in and have like people that are like operatives basically like go in and just scan the mainstream media for every last word that comes out of their mouth and then like start cases and start like, you know, a bunch of stuff and get them like pulled off air. Like I was just watching this, uh, news reported they were talking about the alex jones case and they're like well it's true he lied you know so yeah alex jones was a liar and i'm sitting there thinking like okay so they're calling him a liar now right okay so like how is that different from what jones said about the sandy hook or whatever like oh so now they're allowed to call jones a liar how do we what's that mean he's a liar like I mean, you're not allowed to voice your opinion. You can't have a belief. Like, so this is like absolutely like dangerous, like crazy territories. But so they had the, uh, the crazy thing is, is the, um, the lawyers supposedly fucked up and, uh, leaked to the other lawyer team, to the prosecution or whatever. Um, they leaked like Alex Jones's medical records, like his telephone records, like all this shit that they say is secret. And, um, that other judge ended up opening the files and they know that. And he got, or other, um, lawyer, um, you know, the opposing team. And so, um, there's a lot of like people talking like, you know, what's going on with this? Like, are those lawyers incompetent? Like, you know, like what's the deal? Um, I have a couple like uh, uh, theories on this. Like one thing is it could be a strategy um, to where like, you know, because that they got that lawyer kind of tricked into it and opening those, it, it would, it could have been like a strategy to, um, to get it like something like put to where they couldn't testify about it or something. And I think that kind of came out, but that other lawyer kind of like spoke up and kind of like dodged around that with some legalities. And so like, I don't know if that was um, intended like that. And then if it was, it might be intended. It might even go further, but what's crazy now there's the judge in the case was saying, I heard her say, um, how she uh, heard that the January 6th committee, like all these people have been contacting um, Alex Jones, I guess his lawyers and stuff and, and they're, or that other lawyer. And they're trying to get a hold of that, those phone calls and that call log. And they're literally like the January 6th com committee is trying to get a hold of this now. So like either Alex Jones's, Jones's lawyers are like, you know, really messed up and like that's going to be bad for him or it's some type of strategy i don't know um he had to pay like 4.2 or 4.1 something like that 
million is what, and I think they can like drain them even more. Cause like, I think the case is going to go on or there's another part to it. And there's still a, a, a Connecticut part to it. Uh, he, I think he has to go sometime this month or next month to uh, Connecticut and face a, a trial up there also. Well, it's weird because during the Owen Troyer testimony, Owen Troyer was like pretty, like pretty smart with it. Um, he, I would have did it a little differently maybe, but like he was, he was fairly, did it fairly well. He, um, you know, they started, um, getting into like certain specifics and like asking them certain questions about the broadcast and it got real, um, like convoluted with information and stuff. Um, but you know, ultimately like Owen didn't say anything out of his mouth. Like he didn't say like you, you know, this was a hoax or this was, you know, or anything like that. So, um, it's, they, they kept saying, they kept telling him, you know, uh, don't you care that you hurt, you know, that you, um, destroyed that you like decimated your, you know, these people's, um, feelings and, and this and that and their, you know, um, and he's like, yeah, but Megan Kelly and, and then you guys keep rehashing it. So, so they're sitting there beating this over and over in the courtroom. And he's like, well, if you care about that or something, you know, he kind of like alluded to the fact, like, you know, how are you keep bringing this up or let it, let it go. Yeah. Let it go. Yeah. Because they're the ones actually torturing like Megan Kelly, bringing this issue with Alex Jones to the forefront with Sandy hook. She's the instigator, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, this, this, this shit is crazy, but, um, we're going to bring our guests on and, uh, we're going to talk all about this uh, January 6th. And Bethany was there as well. Sean Witzman is our guest. Uh, he's a writer and he was involved in the film project Bloody Hill. You can go to the website bloodyhill.com. Sean, welcome to the show. And if you could just let everyone know a little bit about your background um, and you know how you got into to um, this point at, where you're at, where uh, you know, you, the, the whole January 6th thing. And then this, this, uh, project. Oh, you might be sorry. Muted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was, I was a little, oh, muted no there. no, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a series of bad decisions really led me into journalism and then, and then to January 6th in some ways. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I had been doing journalistic work, um, for some years before, uh, through various means, I actually started out in satire, which that led me to start my media company in 2019. Uh, I went to Armenia first. Uh, that was kind of my first project. I wanted to do these kind of like mockumentary uh, reverse Borat films about American ignorance abroad. And so that was kind of the idea that I was kicking around and the type of journalism that I wanted to do. Oh, wow. Um yeah, so so that was kind of the first thing. That was in late 2019. Spent some time in Armenia. It was a very eye-opening experience. Um, kind yeah, of saw some I could, I could pretty imagine. ugly things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what what uh, goes on in Armenia? Like how's that all uh, compared to like the U.S. Say, like what's it like? Well, I mean, it's a it's a beautiful country. Um, massive amount of history. Obviously, it was the first Christian nation in the world. So. Uh, you know, the, I, I was actually in the oldest Christian cemetery in the world on Halloween of 2019. So that was kind of, oh. kind of cool in its own right. Yeah. Um, kind of, kind of, but yeah, maybe it, creepy. you know, I, I saw things there as like the, the contrast between the best of humanity, really, when you're out in the countryside and you've got these people that lived through the collapse of the Soviet union and have lived through all these different wars over the years. And then that's kind of a, you know, contrasted against how the city Yerevan is basically run by mafia and there's a lot of human trafficking in the region because of where it's at on the old Silk Road. And and so that was kind of an eye-opening experience, to say the least. I, I had to come face-to-face and confront a lot of things that, you know, people hear rumors about. But, mm-hmm. but when you see it up close and personal, it has a tendency to change your life. And that's without getting too far off into the weeds there. That's, that's really what happened. 
Mm. Um, and so I, I kind of took a more serious approach to journalism after that. Mm-hmm. So I was still kind of kicking around this idea of satire, ended up taking another trip to the United Kingdom, um, and, and traveled around that country for the, for the better part of a month. And when I got back to the United States, that was when they shut the world down. Oh, okay. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. The old, uh, yeah. invisible enemy. Yeah. Because Welcome the scam. Home. Yeah. <laughs> what did you, what so, was going through your go mind when that happened and the, and everything started to kind of close down because like at, I, I had a contracting company at the time and, um, you know, like I was noticing, like it was getting real hard to get the materials. Um, it was, you know, the customers were leery cause they didn't want to get COVID. You know, there's all these like, uh, problems I would run into during the day with the contracting. Well, yeah, and that was, you know, that's something we mentioned in the pre-show was that I had run a, a pretty successful plumbing company for a couple of years prior to that, which is what really allowed me to go off on this other venture. You know, right. I had gotten to the point in my career where I was, you know, really doing a lot of paper pushing. Um, and so I wanted to do some other things. But, you know, obviously it was, it was, it was bizarre because actually when we flew in to Heathrow Airport in London, mm-hmm. They shut down travel from China and other places immediately after we arrived. And oh, so, wow. you know, then by the time we flew back, you know, I got to watch that from England, you know, in the UK, Ireland and Scotland, you know, with my friends there. Mm-hmm. So that was that was kind of an interesting way to observe that very initial phase there in, in late January and into February. Right. Um, and so, you know, yeah, like when I got back, you don't know what's going to happen. Um and then, of course, they decided that everybody needed to do their two weeks to flatten the curve. <laughs> and at the time, I was looking at it and I said, okay, you know, this is kind of like their chance. Yeah. You know, I had reservations about the entire thing, obviously, but it had been years since I was, you know, actively engaged in rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't my thing at the time. Right. Um, you know, and in fact, I used to use I used to use Alex Jones stories and Infowars stories as like inspiration for a lot of the satire that I wrote. But oh yeah. Um. So so it's like you know I get back and this is going on and I'm going okay whatever we'll see how it goes. Um. And and it was like well what am I gonna do because we had actually planned our next trip was was planned to be two months actually in Eastern Europe, uh, Ukraine and then Turkey. And actually do some stuff on the Black Sea. And I wanted to spend some time in Donbass. Right. In eastern Ukraine to kind of see what was going on over there. Well, that that obviously wasn't going to happen. So I'm kind of (laughs) sitting around twiddling my thumbs. Yeah. And going, what do we do? So we started a podcast at that time. And we called it the Armenian Council for Truth and Journalism. Now that name, this is it's like there's no way to tell these stories short. Mm-hmm. But that name came from when people would say that the satire I wrote was fake news. I would tell them, no, no, this has been independently verified by the Armenian Council for Truth and Journalism. Oh, I see. And so that's why we called the podcast that. That's why we went to Armenia kind of as the first trip of, of trying to do something bigger. But so that's what we started. We called the podcast that. And then throughout the summer of 2020, we actually did a lot of coverage of BLM protests in Denver and Portland. We had people, and I and I paid for people to be on the ground streaming. One particular guy, Dar- Dylan Beresford, he was a great guy, you know, a great live stream journalist, uh, very Antifa-oriented, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't agree politically on many things, but we agreed on the idea of live stream journalism, so that's cool. Um, yeah. And so he did a lot of great work in Portland. Actually, he got he got his work picked up by the New York Times. And so he ended up actually starting his own company after that, which, more, you know, more power to you. That's yeah, what that's you awesome. Want to do. You want to be total, in total control. Right. What, um, did, what did you think about those so this, BLM? This kind of, go ahead. Well, what did you think about that? Uh, uh, how was that, like, covering that? And, and uh, what was your, basically, your takeaway from the BLM riots and the Antifa and all that? I think like a lot of protest movements, you have people with genuine concerns. And I think that there were genuine concerns with police brutality in this country. That's something that for years I kind of decried and saw as a problem. Mm-hmm. And and it was not going away. I mean, and, and that gets off into the weeds of why did it happen? And I think there's a lot of reasons, you know, whether you right. talk about qualified immunity and, and these different things. But, uh, you know, my main takeaway from that was that people have the right to speak. 
and they have the right to protest. And and especially in Denver, where the majority of our coverage was centered, obviously, because at that time it was it was close to home. And we had another publication there called Denver, Denver Tribune. So we would stream out of that. Um, you know, that was actually a very peaceful protest. I think around the country we saw in Minneapolis, it was like on earth. Um, and in Portland, really, as well. But in Denver, the, the protests were actually very, very peaceful. And the police there were incredibly brutal, uh, to the point where, you know, another guy, Brock Willett, he had gone to stream there. And he walked downtown by the Capitol, and the police were shooting rubber bullets into the crowd for no reason. They hit a kid right in the head, and it blasted his eye out of his head. See, that's crazy. Um, that Like, that's creepy shit. That's what, like, wigs me out. Um, cause like you could even have like those goggles on and shit and that shit's going to go right through that. Oh no, these, these munitions, they have no business using them. That was, and so that, that like, that was a big concern I had is that I was looking at militarization in general, mm-hmm. um, all the way up to when Trump obviously called in federal troops in Portland and we kind of saw those images, you know, Dylan was on the ground there. Mm-hmm. And and it's like it's all fun and good when it's the other team, right? So right. you know, messaging with a lot of my right wing friends was was based around that. And I'm going, look, you can disagree with these people all you want, and I and I certainly have no love for Marxism, and and that's really what I saw happening was that the Marxists were taking the message that could have been a very libertarian and pro constitutional message. Right, and they were able to co-opt that entire movement. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the right wing and the MAGA movement was sitting by and cheering at this police state on, in a lot of ways. And I think that an opportunity was was missed there. Yeah, I think that an opportunity to message was very much missed there, and it it, it upset me greatly at the time. I mean, I spent one evening when we were doing coverage, and I was up until five a.m. doing production. And I and I very distinctly remember, you know, I had gotten I had made a little video just for my Facebook at the time. And I just said, you know, we're watching freedom die in front of all of us and y'all are doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And so I was very upset mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. Um, again, no love for Marxism. Well aware of the manipulation going on, but seeing a opportunity to message to people who weren't, you know, batshit crazy, who had legitimate concerns. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 to me, the right really missed out on that. But, Do you yeah, think there could have been a meeting of the minds? Is that what you're saying? Do you think there could have been a meeting of the I minds at that moment in time? Be a meeting of the minds. Sure, there there can always be a meeting of the minds. I mean, people can come together and unite over this constitution that we love in this country so dearly, but they just choose not to. This is the this is the biggest problem. Even in the aftermath of January 6th, this is what I see, and that's the frustration in everything that I've seen, is that people can come together. They can unite. That is that one guiding principle. That mm-hmm. should unite us as Americans. Right. But nobody will jump on board with that. And so what we're in, in a situation now where we're really, really divided, especially in the aftermath of January 6th, that was the whole purpose Divide of everything that was orchestrated that day. Yeah. You know, what What did, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what yeah. uh, you saw and what Bethany saw. I guess let's let Bethany describe a little bit about her day there and then like you get into like, your whole day um bethany because like you you rode in on some kind of bus with a bunch of people right like to get there yeah we had decided it was just i think two days beforehand i had found out there was a a bunch of buses leaving from the lehigh valley in my area and um so my son i believe how how old would he have been how many years ago was that I lose track of time, but, um, you know, he was old enough and, 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 you know, I wanted to show him, I think it would make a really good field trip for a homeschooling mom to see our, our, uh, you know, freedom of speech and, and the right to, uh, peacefully assemble. And so we, I went and I was doing the show with Sheb. And so, um, I went to kind of cover it. Unfortunately, my phone was, was giving me problems that day and there was no audio, but, um, I went, I was there. I mean, I, I remember Shep asking me, um, afterwards, like how many people do you get, you know, gather that were there. And I said, you know what? I couldn't even come up with a number because I had never seen that many people in one place at one time. So that was a new experience for me. But, um, Needless to say, we we ended up where Trump was giving a speech, um, but we were pretty far away. My son's quite a bit taller than me, so he could kind of see. But then we made our way. We kind of walked with everybody else towards the Capitol and 
I was right near close where the stairs were, where the scaffolding was. Um, and so my son and I, somebody had pulled us up on like a, like a pedestal or something. And we really got a good view. And I'll tell you what, I mean, I, the stairs were just completely filled. Of course, you know, those were, they were outside and, you know, my son was just like, Oh, he was enthralled in it. And just like, it was such an experience. And, you know, there was so much energy there. And the only thing, the only interaction I saw between uh, Capitol Police and protesters, or for whatever reason anybody was there for, which was a variety of reasons. Um, and I still to this day, I really should go back and look at some of the footage, even though there's no audio to it. But at one point, these there was a line of, I would say maybe 20 or so police officers, um, Capitol Police, you know, coming through the crowd. They were coming from a building. And I can't remember, I can't recall, I'd have to go back and look at the footage, like I said. But everybody let them through. There was no, there was no animosity coming from one way or the other. And they went somewhere and I couldn't see where they went, but then it was only maybe about 15 minutes later, they made a line back. Like then they came back and went back into the building and about the same amount of officers. And I don't know where they were going, but my point being, they, people just let them, you know, go through and there was no, there was no interaction, good, bad, or indifferent. So that's all that I saw. I didn't see any violence. I didn't see anybody getting out of hand. I saw people, you know, with passion and lots of energy, but peacefully assembling. And that's really what I saw. And then, of course, you know, at the end, we saw Jason Goodman coming out. You know, he was there covering it, too. And that was really about it. And it was a very energetic day. And on the way home, I met some great people, interesting people. But... That's about it. I mean, it was really quite uneventful, for lack of better words, as far as, you know, saying an insurrection. I mean, when I started hearing this word insurrection, I'm like, well, I don't know where everybody else was. But from what I was seeing, that is not what I saw. If there was an insurrection that day with that many people there. You would have known it was an insurrection. Oh, yeah. You want to chime in on this, Aaron Cole, and then we'll let uh, Sean tell his how his day went. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, the word insurrection is so misused with this. And insurrection is kind of like something, not necessarily when we saw with the Sri Lanka right now. The insurrection would involve like military and the people overthrowing a government. That's not what happened that day in any stretch of the imagination. And, and then the, just the wording, of course, the media has the power to lay down these terms to, to shock and awe the American public. And they choose to release certain footage and stuff like that to build their narrative and, and craft that to, to warp people's minds. And it's it and so much of what, what Sean said earlier with like the BLM thing and how we could have like used this to, to come together in a way mm-hmm. of just like, Hey, we're, we're all, we all have a problem and we need to come together and fix it instead of like, Oh yeah, the police are fucking them up and in this and that. And then the same, just the reverse with, with the democratic and the left wing people mm-hmm. on January 6th, there's a total missed opportunity and yeah. the media is fueling this narrative. It seems like, and the establishment with, with used terms it to their advantage. Uh, Sean, uh, Witzman is our guest. Bloodyhill.com is the website. Go there, get this film, check it out. Um, I'm going to watch it on Saturday, um, and I'm super stoked to see it. The trailer looks amazing. Y'all can check it out. Um, what, uh, Sean, tell us how your day went uh, January 6th um, that day. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting when Bethany was talking about her experiences. It's such a big building, and there were so many people there, so the the variance in experiences that day it continued to amaze me um but you know obviously i had been covering this since november i was out there for the original million maga march i was down in atlanta during different protests there i was in phoenix arizona covering when giuliani was presenting the evidence of the uh i don't know if we're allowed to say it here but uh, he was presenting evidence yeah. for the the legislature there. So I had seen this thing build the election all the fraud. way through, <laughs> yeah, through December twelfth, and you know I had basically become embedded with Proud Boys. Okay, um, didn't know anything about Proud Boys prior to covering these events, but I thought it was an interesting story. They were not getting uh, very accurate press, in my opinion. So I that was that was really what I was covering. Now, uh, so, one of the Proud Boys, I believe they tried to say Joe Biggs or something was 
um, they they got him and they said he was involved with the Proud Boys. And I haven't heard in a status on him. Bethany, have you uh, heard about that? That info Joe Biggs was... is indefinitely detained oh, at this my point, God. Uh, along with seventy six other people. Um, yeah, he's yeah, he's he was bailed out, right? But then didn't they revoke his bail because yeah, then they, they charged him with something yeah. else? Yeah, yeah, and they're charging they're charging a lot of those guys, Ethan Nordine. And, you know, obviously now Enrique Tarrio has been pulled into that as well, but they're charging all of them with seditious conspiracy wow. in relation to a Ministry of Defense chat that they had on Telegram. Mm. And and as best as I can tell, there may have been some ideas of peacefully occupying. I don't know. Mm. And, and time will tell. But, you know, especially in the case of Joe Biggs, Joe Biggs was a great guy. Yeah, uh, really absolutely. great. Guy. I met him once um, in person. Yeah, I met him in D.C. Uh, really, I think it was... December 13th, mm -hmm. I believe, is when I met him. Just met him in the street. I had no idea who he was. Just struck up a conversation. We were talking about various things. He actually expressed a lot of upset over the violence that was going on between Proud Boys and BLM in the streets of D.C. And he was just saying what a giant waste of time it was. He said those kids weren't his enemies. You know, so, I mean, I think he understood a lot of the messaging that I was getting at, actually. Right. Which, you know, you'll never hear that in the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. So he actually came on our show, um, on our podcast, I think it was on December, or it would have been January 3rd, I believe. Oh, really? He came on okay. Yeah. So he came on our show, and, and he had a lot of things to say, and, um, you know, didn't really know what to expect. I mean, I obviously wasn't in any sort of no with those guys. I think they allowed me a certain amount of access, and they'd learned to respect me, because I was just always running around during the violence by myself. You know, with a sweatsuit and a cell phone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, streaming. So, you know, th there was a certain amount of respect there, but I obviously didn't have any idea, you know, what they were planning on any level, if that was the case. Mm -hmm. um, but he did say that there was going to be a surprise on that show. And it's like, okay. Um, ahead of me going to, to, to that, I was actually very nervous. I didn't like the feelings I was getting. Um, I had very good intelligence sources at the time mm -hmm. who all kind of signaled that something was going to be happening there. You know, lots of messages of, you know, be careful, be safe, you know, don't walk around trash cans, you know, things like that. Yeah. Oh, and wow. so, yeah, so I was, I was not happy about going to the point where I even considered not going on the sixth, but I said, man, I've been covering this story. I said, I got to go and cover it. You know, there's, there's, this is, this is how you end the story. I can't just quit now. Right. So, you know, kiss my boys goodbye. And took off to D.C. I got in on on January 4th, actually. Um, and then and then I was there January 5th. Obviously, Enrique Tario came into town. He was arrested. Somebody sent me a message about that. I reported on that. I went out on the streets. You know, I was I was out all day January 5th in Freedom Plaza when people were um, there. Actually, Tario got arrested on the 4th. Right. Sorry about that. Um, so I was in, in Freedom Plaza on January 5th, observed all that. I was at BLM Plaza the evening of January 5th when Ray Epps was running around and, and trying to get people riled up and saying they needed to go into the Capitol. So that was all very interesting. Oh, yeah, that guy. That, and actually, uh, I ended up... That dude looked like FBI ahead, to sorry. me. He looked uh, FBI or something, just looking at him. I mean, I don't know. Interestingly enough, I had captured Epps actually having a conversation with baked Alaska in Arizona back when that was going on, they had an interaction there where they were kind of having an argument and that's somewhere on my master Twitter thread. Oh, interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like I, you know, when it comes to Epps, I, I still don't know what to think about him. I know a lot of people are convinced he's, you know, FBI. I honestly don't know if he's, which agency he's with, if he's with any agency, yeah, you never know. He, he has like a look to yeah. him, though. Like, um, I don't know how to explain it. Like, he, I don't know. Just, oh no, I mean, he was, he was, he was like a, he was a president of Oath Keepers in Arizona. Oh, okay. So I mean, Oath Keepers. They, they kind of have yeah. that look too, right? Like, yeah. I don't know. Just that, like, it's almost like a, like a union look or like an FBI look or something. Yeah, but I mean, that's a lot of these guys. I mean, that, that's that's the thing is that when you're talking about you know, groups, especially like Oath Keepers, you're going to have a lot of former military, former law enforcement. They have that look. So, yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean much to me. Right. Um, but 
so anyways, you know, January 5th and then January 6th, I was actually supposed to be up close to where Trump was. That fell through. didn't happen because the person who was supposed to get me the passes that I needed or whatever got too drunk the night before and didn't get up the next morning. <laughs> oh, no. So, so I was milling around the Washington Monument, not really knowing what I was doing, what I was covering. You know, you could barely hear Trump. So I was getting a lot of B-roll, which is what you saw a little bit of that in the opening trailer of Bloody Hill. Yeah, I'm familiar um, with uh, that going yeah. on where me and Aaron, yeah. we shot our last the last doc together, uh, Aaron Cole and I, and... Uh, we had to get B-roll and all that. Like, you know, when your plans don't go quite right. Exactly. You just try to make the best of it. And so I actually ended up, you know, I, I walked up and I said, okay, well, I'm going to go to the Capitol because I knew that there was going to be some sort of a rally there. Didn't really know what, but I knew that Ali Alexander and these other people, they were planning, you know, stop the steal. There was even talk about occupying the Capitol grounds. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to go try to get a better vantage point or a better position for the next phase of this, whatever it is, right? And so I started walking on east on, uh, on the mall. When I got to the halfway point of the mall, I actually received a call and was told that they had found pipe bombs. Oh, and shit. So, yeah, yeah I, so I, I, remember, so, yeah, I remember when exactly. that was going on. Yeah. Oh, they still haven't found the pipe bomber. That's, that's an interesting thing we can get into. <laughs> but uh, and so I got that call. And so that, you know, that increased the kind of sense of nervousness, nervousness I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I continued towards the Capitol. When I got to the Capitol, everything on the outside barriers that we've seen in the aftermath had already been breached and people had pushed up to that west side of the building. And so, you know, I'm doing what I do. I get right up to the front in between police and protesters. So that's what I did near the northwest stairs. And actually, I watched, you know, Guy Reffitt, who was just recently sentenced to seven and a half years. I watched him as as he kind of was moving up those stairs on the northwest side while police were shooting with pepper balls. And that's the thing is that is that there was a lot of agitation going on um, from police where there was no reason for things to be violent. But, you know, I guess that's how that was going to be. And I think it was a lot of confusion. I was actually imploring with the police that I was standing right next to. I said, please, please don't start shooting lead said, whatever you do, don't start shooting lead because the crowd just kept massing up behind and I knew that it would turn into a mess. And I, and I, I told him that at some point I said, I said, look, I said, you can't do that. I said, everybody's going to die if that happens. So, you know, then they start firing off tear gas. And so I'm eating tear gas and the whole nine yards and that's all what it is. Pretty painful. Oh, I um, bet. I could only imagine, <laughs> you know, but so, so then at some point the police just stood down. Hmm. And, really? and when they stood down, everyone started to move up those northwest stairs. And so I remember saying, because I was live streaming at the time, I said, well, I guess I'm, uh, I guess I'm going up the stairs. <laughs> so I went up the stairs and got to that upper terrace area. And I actually tried to go to the top of the inauguration stage. They had that, you know, the, the large inauguration stage there that ended up having a flag hung off of it and everything. Mm-hmm. And a Capitol Police officer screamed at me, you know, you get down. I said, yes, ma'am. And I got down and, and then I kind of walked back over towards the north side of that terrace uh, near the Senate wing. And, and I remember getting some footage of the crowd and I was just kind of, you know, taking it all in. And... And I, I heard some banging on the doors, um, but I was not present there. L- you know, in retrospect, that was when Dominic Pozzola apparently broke through the window there, and then they began opening that door. And so then they those doors opened. They opened up another set of doors on the Senate wing, and it opened from the inside. So there was definitely a certain level of confusion for anybody who was walking up at that time where they're going, okay, the doors are opening, what do you do, whatever. And me being there to do what I was there to do, you know, went in, Um, went in and, you know, I saw kind of what was going on there. There was a there was a police officer who told me that I needed to go out the way I came. Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. I said, I said, okay, well, I'm covering this. This is kind of important. She said, no, 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 we need you. Oh, okay, Yes, ma'am. So, again, comply with police. Right. Right. So I go out, and then by then people were streaming in through the other door that had initially been the place where it was breached or whatever. And uh-huh. so I went back in there, um, you know, walked around for a while, 
there was a, a, a place in the hallway and police were standing there. They weren't saying anything. They weren't giving commands. It was all kind of very confusing. Um, and, and I said to one of them, I said, brother, stand with us, which that'll become important later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that point, you know, that kind of, they, they led a bunch of people down that hallway. And then I came to find out later that they actually led them uh, back to the Senate chambers and Luke Mogelson, who was with the New Yorker, who's a reporter with the New Yorker. He followed that crowd. I went another way. And it's interesting because he ended up writing this whole thing about how he knew what I was thinking when I said, brother, stand with us and blah, blah, blah. But um, so so then we go the other way and I end up in a hallway right between the house and the statuary hall. Right. So you've got the rotunda as you move south in the building, you've got statuary hall and then you have the House of Representatives. And if you take a left from the hallway I was in, then you can kind of go towards the speaker's chamber. And I never went that far. So I was standing there kind of recouping, drinking some water again, taking it all in. It was very packed in there. It was very loud. And, you know, I honestly don't remember, but the timing all seems right. And I think I heard a gunshot at that point. And then I saw uh, some Capitol police or others of some sort, you know, very heavily armed that went moving past me in that direction. Now it's, the, the time works out. I'm, I'm, you know, sure that that was when Ashley Babbitt was shot by, uh, by officer bird. Okay. Right. Um, yeah. So, so then, so then they come back and they start telling everybody, okay, go back into the rotunda, go back into the rotunda. So, you know, that's, that's what we did. And I'm sitting there looking, and I've often said that, you know, I thought there would be some sort of a peaceful sit-in in the rotunda, you know, but that, you know, probably because I'm a child of hippies. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was there observing whatever, and then all of a sudden the police essentially decided that they were going to violently start pushing people out. And it got pretty violent in there there's actually that is the only video that survived because none of my live stream uploaded because the bandwidth was so saturated but that video survived and you can find it on my youtube free range journalist now which is the new youtube after being banned so many times but uh it's called in the rotunda wow now so it got really packed there like how packed in was it like how many people would you estimate were in there uh you know maybe maybe a hundred people and you know 50 cops and then people pushing in from the outside it's you know it's really hard to judge and if you if you go back and it's interesting you know obviously since i've been charged in the aftermath of this i got access to a certain amount of video and when you look at the security footage it you know it doesn't look nearly as uh, intense as it does from my vantage point so i've always thought that was interesting yeah, um, you know that. Yeah, there that's was a wild who passed though. out in front like, of me, hit the floor, and I was screaming at the police to, you know, make some room to try to save her from being crushed. Mm-hmm. So it was it was pretty terrifying to the point where I remember looking up at the at the eye of the rotunda and thinking, well, you know, this might be the last thing I ever see, but it sure is pretty. Wow. Now, uh, so like, what was going through your mind? I mean, you like you're kind of saying like it was pretty intense and stuff, but was like. Was that like a big rush? Were you like terrified? Like what? Like were you like, oh fuck, I shouldn't have got myself into this shit? Like what were you thinking? Uh, no, nothing like that. I mean, I was there to do what I was there to do. Right. So at some point, you just kind of resign yourself to that, mm-hmm. and you know that may be like an in the moment kind of trauma response where you just focus on the mission, so to speak. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As yeah. as much as you can, but it was like, you know, this it. it it was intense. It was really intense. And then, and then, of course, you know, once that subsided and they let us out, first they said, oh, we're arresting everyone here. And, of course, people were pulling out press credentials. And I actually had my paperwork on me from my company. I said, okay, well, we'll see how this goes. Yada, yada, because I'm just a small-time independent guy. And, um, and then they just said, okay, everybody out of the building. So then they ordered us out of the building. So I left the building. Hmm. Um. And, and, you know, I walked around on, they actually put us out on the east side of the building, which I think a lot of people who were on the east side, you know, think that it was a lot more peaceful that day. It's, it's interesting when I talk to different people, but, you know, so over there, and then I talked to some different journalists who were doing like B-roll or footage from the outside. They were like, oh, were you in there? I said, yeah. And they're all like, our bosses won't let us go in there. And I said, well, I'm my own boss and maybe that's the problem. Oh. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> I went I went and I talked to some other park police who were actually at the Supreme Court, talked to them for a minute. You know, and again, in my interactions with police, I try to keep it positive. Yeah. You know, that's that's part of it. Um, and then, and then actually I had, I got a call from another guy, Rocky Stucci, who, who lives there, down there in Texas. And he had a show called the situation room and he said, well, would you, would you come on the show tonight? I said, yeah, of course. Cause I've been friends with him for some time. Mm-hmm. And, and so I went back to my hotel at that point, did that show, did my podcast later on that night was when they locked everything down. They were locking people in their hotel rooms and it was all pretty freaky. And so, you know. That's that's kind of how that went that day. I I got up the next morning. Everything was still weird in the city, <laughs> and then I saw that they were arresting all sorts of people at the airport. And I said, well, you know, because I had a flight booked, and I just said, well, I'm not going to deal with that. My flight was booked to leave on the eighth, actually. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm not going to deal with that. So I went and rented a car, and a friend of mine, Michaela, um, she actually helped me drive back to Denver. Because after everything I'd seen, I just wanted to get home and see my boys. I was I was very upset. And then when I started seeing the media reports, it really felt as though I had just witnessed the the death of America was how I took it. Oh, very absolutely. Upsetting. Yeah. I mean, the, that whole thing is upsetting. I mean, just in general of how, well, I kind of figured something was going to happen that day. I remember telling Bethany to be careful kind of or something like that. And um I, I suspected something, but I didn't really know what, um, that's, that's crazy that they chose this for like the catalyst to attack, you know, uh, freedom or whatever. It it seems like, like a, another turning point in their, um, plot obviously. And it's taken it a lot farther. And now even, um, like I was, I was mentioning how the, um, they're going to subpoena, Jones's phone records now because this. Oh uh, yeah, yeah because of the attorney. They're wrapping everybody them. into this. I mean, that's the thing is that I think a lot of people haven't realized yet, and of course I'm you know acutely aware of it. You know I interviewed with the FBI roughly a week later. They came to my house, mm-hmm. banged on the door, and and I voluntarily went in and interviewed with them. Everything I did was public, anyways. Do so, they you know, show up like? Do? do they show up like dicks and just like bang on your door? Are they like real respectful and nice? Like how did that? No, they in 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 my particular case. Now this is not the same for everybody who's been wrapped up in this. And a lot of what we do at StopHate.com, if people go there, I mean, is obviously dealing with January sixth. So I, you know, in my particular case, the local FBI field office, it was in Farmington, New Mexico at the time. They were, they were very, very, um, respectful. Um, so they came to me, I interviewed with them, thought nothing of it, went about my business. I started getting reports from my sources that there were multiple agencies in the building that day Mm. with multiple agendas. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of held off on it a little bit, but I wound up reporting on that in late January was, I think the first time I actually talked about it on air or anything. Okay. And so that was, that was kind of something I was aware of very early on, which now we're starting to see a lot of that come to fruition. But interestingly enough, three months later, I had John Sullivan, who's Jaden X for the people who are kind of aware. And he was right there recording when Ashley Babbitt was shot. Uh, he's also the guy that they say, well, he's BLM, he's Antifa, and he's all these things. I actually had him on my podcast with another J6 journalist, J.D. Rivera. And a week after we did that show, which I thought was a very informative show, a week after we did that show was when I got the call from the FBI to turn myself in. Oh, wow. Shit. Now, uh, when you get a call like that, what's that like? Were you thinking like, like what goes through your mind? Um you know, because I've done journalism and I think I've had brushes. Well, I know I've had some crazy brushes with what I think might have even been like, um, for instance, I was the first journalist to um, interview the Bundys during the Meow Here wildlife standoff. And yeah, and then yeah. this whole fucking shit show started. I was in Austin, Texas, and all these black SUVs were following me and like, it was like pretty wild and uh, clicking on my phone for like a whole year. There was like people like assigned to me. They would try to like probe me. Um, it was like no, really bizarre. So. Did so like what, what, when they come to like, when they call you like that, like what do you, what goes through your head? 
Well, I mean, I was pissed. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I did not see how anything I had done that day warranted right. prosecution. Right. Um, and, and I just, I didn't understand it. Did you see that coming? I, like, know, like, like I would have, like in my case, like, I don't know. That, I, yeah. Like I, I would almost suspect that, but like, did like, did you, cause I know you did everything right and you were in communication with the police. Did you just think everything's cool? Like, boom, I'm a journalist. Like it's all good. And then that popped up or like, you know, what were you no, kind of say that? Okay. I mean, to me, I was looking at an out of control government. I was looking at an election that had just been stolen. Right. So, so you, you know, knew all bets are off. You knew. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was wondering like, cause I would have been kind of like, damn, yeah. what's going to happen. But they, so they call you up like then how's that feel? Like, what are you thinking at that point? Well, I, I, I it, it's funny where literally I was in Denver, Colorado at the time and I had had a great weekend with friends there. And it, I think that was the first weekend since that I had gone out, you know, some COVID restrictions had relaxed. So I went and listened to music, you know, and had a good time, you know, kind of like the old days. Yeah. And, and, and I think that was the first weekend that I was really relaxed since January 6th. And then I get that call. So that was, that was a very weird moment. And I, you know, I just said, well, I said, you know, I asked the agent who called me and, and he said, you know, we need you to come in. And, and later on, I mean, he would basically tell me that, you know, they wanted, the DOJ wanted him to go and break the door down in my house. Holy shit. You know, they wanted that shock and awe, which is what they've talked about in all this. They wanted to make this horrible, terrible, terrible example. And, and, you know, and I have no reason to doubt this guy. And, and, and the special agent, he told me, he said, well, I, he, he said, I just told him I'm not going to do that. He said, I can call Sean and he'll turn himself in. There's no reason to do that to his family. You know, yeah. so big, Big, big ups to that guy for being a stand-up guy in no, a wow, that's, bad situation. That, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so, like, he might have been seeing some of this tyranny himself uh, manifesting and kind of, like, went about it a better way. Um, Absolutely. Wow. That's cool. Well, what did they say that you did? What laws did they say that you broke? Well, and, and like I say, we can definitely get into that. Um I was charged with four federal misdemeanors that basically are the standard four misdemeanors that now 900 people, you know, almost the, you know, the, the complete majority of the 900 people have been charged with. Mm-hmm. And they're all, they're federal misdemeanors with a maximum uh, sentencing guideline of three years in prison if you were to be convicted on all four. Hmm. So that's that's what they charged me with. It was it was uh, entering a restricted building, entering a restricted area, um, capital grounds, violent entry. They charged me with violent entry, and picketing and parading in a capital building. Hmm. So that's that's what they charged me with. They they took me to a federal federal immigration facility after they processed me. I was in there for 24 hours. You know, they did the whole chain and shackle thing to go see the judge, and then the judge let me out. You know, because they're misdemeanor charges. Okay. Um. So you know, I was you know I basically been on on pretrial release for the better part of a year and a half, while we sorted things through, and then I think it was just roughly two weeks ago I finally entered a plea of guilty to picketing and parading in a Capitol building. So right now I'm starting to go through the federal sentencing process. Wow, that's absolutely crazy. What um, sentence are you looking at? Sorry, Chef. Um, no, well, so it's interesting. You know, I pled guilty to picketing and parading in a Capitol building. I felt that that was fine, I guess, and appropriate. I still don't agree with how the law is being applied, but I finally came to a reason uh, based off of a memorandum of opinion in another case, actually J.D. Rivera, who had been convicted on all four charges as a journalist. And I, and I read through the memorandum of opinion on his because he had expressed a certain amount of support for those who were there, they said that they were convicting him on all four charges under aiding and abetting, which is Section 2 of U.S. Code 18. And so looking at that, I said, okay, you know, I think I can I can admit guilt here. But it all hinged around me saying, brother, stand with us to the Capitol Police officer. That was my crime. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, oh, you know, there was gosh. a similar thing happened during the Malheur Wildlife Standoff. Um when when I got that interview with the Bundys and then like 
I was saying like all these black SUVs, like all sorts of shit started happening on my end, but I was in yeah. Austin and they thought I was in um, Oregon. But what happened was there was this other journalist, Pete Santilli there. Yep. And they wrapped yep. him up. It was something like that. You know, they, he was just like walking along with these people and they filmed them all together. And then the next thing you know, they're like following him around and wrapping him up. Yep. Um, so, you know, that's kind of, um, I feel like um, they go out of their way to do, like, obviously you're a journalist. I mean, you weren't vandalizing anything. I mean, how ridiculous, right? Yeah. I mean, even, even the U.S. attorney in my case, which, again, he seemed like a, a reasonable guy. He doesn't necessarily seem malicious to me. Uh, but, you know, he had said at one point, he said, we're not even debating that you're a journalist, Sean. But And, and, and it's like, and it, you know, we're not going after you because of things you said because they they also said that they intended to do things that i had said like you know mm -hmm. i called jerry nadler a, a fat fuck mm -hmm. um you know so things like that um, which is true which is yeah true like, yeah they they didn't like my i had i had told them obviously that i was sympathetic to proud boys because they during the initial fbi interview they obviously asked me if i was a member i said no i said i'm not but you know i am sympathetic i've been i've been covering them so, you know, that was that was kind of how that was. And it took me, you know, a year and a half of, of negotiating this plea deal. They obviously they had words like insurrection in it initially. And I said, I can't agree to that. I had no part in any sort of insurrection. Mm -hmm. And so through my, you know, attorney and everything else, they took that language out. But it's like it's weird you know, how they got to get you to make up. It's weird how they got to get you to make up. It, it's weird though how they got to get you to make a plea deal like they're walking people into this do you feel like they like walked you into it in the end um in, in a weird way or like you know what's your take on that i did everything that day on my own it was it was my decision um, I, I can't blame anybody what about through the court through the court process do you feel like it was a fair deal I think the courts could always use work. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm at, I'm at ease with, with my decision. Well, plug anything you want. We'll plug anything you want on the way out. Sean Witzman is our guest. Bloodyhill.com. We gotta, we gotta go now. We don't got much time. Uh, Sean, go ahead. Yeah, just find me, free range journalist, or find my name, Sean Witzman. S H A W N W I T Z E M A N N. Stophate.com. Bloodyhill.com. Thanks for having awesome, me. Awesome, man. Hey, good show, man. Thanks a lot. We'll we'll see you later. All right, everyone. ATN.live. Check it out. Tell everyone about it. Share it out. Go to the bottom of the page. Donate. Keep the lights on. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Thank you for your courage as well. God bless. I can't wait to watch this film this weekend. Thank you, Sean. Uh, we'll we'll link that uh, description to that event in Texas in the uh, in the podcast description as well, Sean. The Texas Reckoning, August twenty seventh and twenty eighth in Mesquite. <laughs>